Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Fearless Paranoia podcast, where we are demystifying the complex world of cybersecurity. I am Brian, the cybersecurity attorney. And I am Ryan, the cybersecurity architect. And we want to welcome you here to our 50th episode. So for all of you who are joining us for all 50, uh, hi, mom. And for everybody else who's been around for just a few of our episodes, thanks for tuning in. This has been an incredibly fun project, and we're looking forward to continuing to educate the world and removing the fog of war from cybersecurity to the best of our ability. Today, we're actually going to circle back to the topic that we started this podcast with, and that topic is ransomware. Now, when we first started this podcast, it was the summer of 2022, which are the the good old halcyon days back when, believe it or not, ransomware was not on the decline, but had really stalled out. Well, that's no longer really the case anymore. It turns out that once the economy got back going from the COVID collapse implosion, they remember that period where you could go out on the road and it actually was a real life zombie apocalypse. There was no one out there. We've returned to the digital era pre-COVID. There are a lot of different areas of ransomware that we need to talk about. But what we're going to discuss today is how ransomware works now. When you think of ransomware, you think of that sign popping up on your computer screen saying everything has been encrypted. There's a ransom being demanded for the return of your stuff. Well, because that image has solidified so much within the minds of the general public, that is still the first thing most people think of when they think of ransomware. But what we're really talking here is we're talking about what happens when ransomware goes beyond just locking up your stuff. In order to get us into this discussion, I do want to start off with a refresher on how cyber attacks work because they are very important to understanding this particular topic. So Ryan, let's talk about that. When we're talking about ransomware, we're talking about, generally speaking, someone getting into your systems and finding your data and then doing whatever they will with it. Walk us through how that happens. Sure. So classic ransomware, when it kind of first hit the market, was exactly what you said. It was get a hold of the data and put it into a state where you could effectively hold it and the business that required it for ransom. And so that involves an initial intrusion vector, usually after a bit of reconnaissance. In some cases, you can skip the recon layer, but in most cases, you look for a target first, and then you work on initial access. So this would either be through finding an exploitable public system, something unpatched that there's a known exploit for, or using phishing to contact their users or somebody with some sort of elevated access, or even just somebody with general access in their system. Usually once you gain that initial access, then you're looking to see what do they have? What do they have that's useful and what do they have that's important to them? So you do some discovery. Usually you use the access you have and see what you can get into. If it's privileged access, you've already kind of jumped to the next step. If it's not, in a lot of cases, you're going to kind of poke around and see maybe what you can see what's out there. And then you're going to work on elevation. You're going to work towards getting access to a privileged account or a privileged system in such a way that you can start getting broader access to be able to actually manipulate and modify that data in such a way where you can get to that state of holding it for ransom. Once you've identified the treasure troves and you've worked through the privilege escalation or elevated access to get to a point where you can do things like roll out ransomware and encrypt the data into a state where the business cannot decrypt it or 
or whatever the the other means are that you plan to employ against their data, then you enact the actual malicious activity, right? So that's where you're actually going to, in the early cases, again, it was just usually ransomware. So they would deploy their encryptor and then deploy the messaging and then sit back and wait. So at that point, then you sit back, you reach out to as many people as you can get a hold of. It becomes really apparent really quick when you're in a ransomware instance that your stuff is unusable. You start to find those messages and then you reach out and you start negotiations and you work towards collecting some money. And hopefully, if you're the business, if you've decided to pay up, that the criminals would then give you the key to unlock your data again. As you pointed out, we'll talk a little bit more in this episode about how that's kind of taken some new modern steps and has kind of evolved. But that was kind of the initial state or the initial path that that event kind of progressed along to get to that stage. And even in the modern updated version of ransomware, I think there's still a great deal of value that hackers get out of encrypting your files. Obviously, the rise of ransomware led to far more sophisticated data backup procedures. I know a lot of cloud backup systems have a 24-7, 365 data backup process, but it's like a trickle backup. And part of the purpose for that is so that if you were to get hit with ransomware and it's still constantly backing up your stuff, but it's backing it up at such a rate that only small components of your backup will have been encrypted if you you know catch it in time and stop the data backup. So that whole process has worked out pretty well, but most ransomware groups still use that initial encryption, that locking up of your data, even if it's not necessarily their primary means of extracting money. It's a pretty good billboard, isn't it? It's a pretty good paper with magazine letters cut out, letting you know who they are, what they're capable of, and that you need to pay, right? Well, I mean, if you want to get money from a business, you're going to have to give them a good reason to want to pay you. And a really good way is to stop the inflow of money into a business. And what better way to do that than by locking up their operations? I mean, if a business can't function and can't operate and do their average day-to-day operational duties because of the fact that they rely so heavily on those data sets, you put them in a really awkward position. Now they have to make a decision of, do they need that data back quickly? Or some businesses are resilient and they can restore quickly. They can make the decision of, okay, we're not going to pay. What we're going to do is shut down and start restoration efforts and then get ourselves back up and operational that way. Some businesses can't do that. And they say, well, we have no option. We don't have good backups or we can't act fast enough upon them to get back operational and we're losing too much money. It's going to be cheaper for us to just pay these guys and hope that they give us the key and get back operational. And that's the the decision that a lot of businesses kind of have to get to in those early stages, especially when there's an aggressive level of ransomware occurring throughout your business. And it's got you at a standstill. You're listening to the Fearless Paranoia Podcast. For more information on keeping yourself, your family, and your company protected against cyber threats, check out the Resilience Cybersecurity and Data Privacy blog. If you're enjoying this podcast, please like and subscribe using any of your favorite podcast platforms. Also, please share this podcast with anyone you think would find it helpful or useful. We rely on listeners like you to help get the word out about this show, and we appreciate the support. Now, time for some more cybersecurity. So we know now, or at least we've talked about now, the general idea of how an attacker would get into your system, what they do when they get there. The difference between traditional ransomware and what has now been termed double extortion or double ransomware comes down really to, I mean, it's not even so much of a distinction anymore, but what they do before they let you know that they're there. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, so when you get into the case of this this kind of double extortion that we're talking about here with ransomware, again, some businesses have become resilient in being able to recover 
from ransomware style activities to the point where if their data is locked up, they just don't feel confident in needing to pay these threat actors any longer to recover. They can recover on their own and they've done a good job of building good backup strategy, multiple layers of backups. They test them. They're able to recover quickly and redeploy them quickly. And that's great. So it's given them a certain state of operational resilience. And so ransomware gangs have had to take other steps to try and make their attacks more effective. In some cases, they've started targeting backup systems now to try and hunt down the operational resilience that's been put in place. But that's a cat and mouse game. And in some cases, if they build good offline or good offsite backups, that may not be an opportunity for the ransomware actors. So what they've done now is they've decided, okay, we're going to take this to the next level. One of the other problems I would imagine, at least for attackers penetrating a system and spending too much time looking for backups is you risk tripping alarms. Sure, absolutely. And that's why you need to be really careful about jumping around too much. So again, once they've identified the data sets, if locking it up doesn't become feasible or if that's not being effective enough to really produce the ransom that you're looking for. One other thing businesses hate besides having their data locked up is having their private data made public or visible. That's where the exfiltration part really comes in next as the kind of second layer I guess. Maybe multi-factor extortion is really what we're kind of getting into here, right? (laughs) I hope nobody's coined that yet because that one just kind of popped up, right? Yeah, that'd be We're going to go ahead and uh, copyright that, Fearless Paranoia 2024. Yeah, multi-factor extortion. So this is when they lock up your systems and... Even if, let's say, you've got the ability to recover from that, now they go and they do what a lot of these groups like Black Hat and others are doing, and they have a leak site where they'll pop right up and say, hey, we've hit this company. We've been in their data sets. We now hold X number of gigabytes, terabytes, petabytes of their data. We'll start with double extortion, and I think that the exfiltration part is... I mean, obviously, exfiltration is what gives birth to the second phase. When we talk about double, triple, quadruple extortion, they're all building on each other. And no matter what, the second level, that double extortion is always the exfiltration of company data. And no matter how it's used, whether it's sort of the backup system, if you don't pay their first ransom, they come back and say, well, you may not need us to decrypt your data because maybe it's just a Black Basta ransomware and you use the DOJ's recently released decryption key and you got all your data back. Congratulations. But we actually have your data and if you don't want to see it on our leak site, you have to pay us. So the double part, I think it's still exclusively a conversation between the attackers and the immediate victim. Then we get into the higher end stuff because the triple extortion, again, (laughs) the multi-factor extortion is not narrowly confined to just two factor. The triple extortion is when you start bringing in people from the outside and how you bring them in seems to be what separates the definition on some sites between triple extortion, quadruple extortion, dodecahedral extortion. But let's talk a little bit about that because obviously threatening a company that you're going to release their company data that has been stolen is exponentially worse for most companies than simply losing important data. Because you're talking about things like customer data, financial information, employee information. Trade secrets, intellectual property. Exactly. Internal negotiations, critical emails. The idea of threatening that release is bad, but what happens when the attackers then bring in the outside world? Yeah, that's where it really starts to get tough, right? So we said it's one thing when you grab a business's intellectual property and you lock it up so that they can't make use of it, right? Now their operations are shut down. But now you go out and you say, we're either going to offer it out to your competitors or we're going to offer it out to the highest bidder or we're going to offer it out heck, publicly. Maybe we'll just post it if you don't pay. That's a really tough spot to be in now. Pay, otherwise we're going to consider releasing this. Here's a copy of some of your really, really highly 
secretive data just to prove to you that we've got it. So go ahead and pay us. It's really tough for a business to be locked down. It's even tougher to know that maybe your competitors or maybe the public will have access to your things. I think one of the most heinous versions of this that I recall seeing was back a few years ago when a large psychiatric practice in Scandinavia, I can't remember if it was Norway or Sweden, was breached and they had a bunch of data exfiltrated. Their stuff was locked up. The company was approached. They refused to pay. They were threatened with the release of the data. They still refused to pay. So the attackers, instead of releasing the data, they contacted the individual patients of a psychiatric practice, a large one. They had thousands of patients, personal psychiatric notes, and they said, hey, contact this place. We've hacked the data and we're telling them we won't release it if they pay this amount. But if they don't pay, we're going to release it. Those are the kind of things that are just nuts to me when you're talking about bringing in people who they're third parties, but they're victims as well. A lot of these groups really kind of shied away from doing things that would attract law enforcement attention. I think until they got to the point where even their current activities were gaining enough law enforcement attention, everything is fair game. Well, so let's take that then to the ultimate step that we've come to now, which some people refer to as quadruple extortion, or some people lump it in with triple extortion. And quite frankly, it could go to five because this is really two different things. One is you've locked up someone's data. You've exfiltrated the data first, and you've threatened them with release of the data if they don't pay. Okay. That didn't work. So now you look at the data you have and you start contacting the people whose data is in your data set and saying, Hey, you may want to contact this company and tell them they need to pay the ransomware. One aspect of this quadruple extortion is, okay, I'm just going to directly extort the people whose data I got, even though it wasn't part of the initial target, right? I've collected a ransom from company A, but customer one through 1,000, I'm going to demand $500, $1,000, $1,500 from each of them in order to avoid release of the information. And then there's the other potential part of that. Essentially, once all of the exfiltration information has been successfully or unsuccessfully ransomed, is to say, oh, by the way, if you don't pay us, we're going to exploit the vulnerability that we know that you have or exploit the persistence that we have managed to create in your system to shut you down in some other way. One classic example is a, a distributed denial of service. We're going to shut you down. We're going to shut down your online presence because we know how unless you pay us. So it's an extra way of getting ransom that exists beyond the entire initial ransom demand. Let's be honest here. Uh, a lot of these attackers are getting, they're getting big money payouts from the first level attacks, right? By going after businesses. Mm -hmm. And it's relatively low effort when you think about it. Just look at it this way, right? So if your goal is you're really hungry and you're fishing, you can either go catch one really big tuna and feed for maybe a couple days and eat for a couple days. Or you can go try and catch a thousand minnows and sit down and snack over and over for the course of a couple days. It's going to be a lot harder and it'll take a lot more effort for you to go catch thousands of little fish to equate to the same amount of hunger satisfaction as you would by catching one big one. So going after that big business, that's really where the big money is. And it's the most bang for your buck. It's the most financial gain for the least amount of effort. Going after all the individual people, that also means targeting individual emails, going after individual, following up with individual people. If I go to a Fortune 500 business or a Fortune 100 business, I can go in and say, give me a million, give me 5 million, give me 10 million. I can't go to each of those people who, whose name was in a list that I exfilled from them and say, give me a million, because a lot of these people on this list may not even make a million in their whole lifetime. So you have to go after them and say, give me a hundred, give me 500, give me a thousand. 
And you have to assume that a lot of those people don't know how to pay in Bitcoin, don't have Bitcoin and stuff sitting around, don't have the knowledge or the people and the expertise to be able to go around and get that kind of payment. So now you got to go instruct them of how to go do it, how to get there, how to get that money from it's a lot more effort for a lot less payout. You're almost better off in a lot of cases by going after the next big fish to really gain maximum financial benefit. So we've explored all these different ways that ransomware has evolved now. You've got double extortion, which involves essentially the threatened release of exfiltrated data. You've got triple extortion, which involves the pronouncement to the outside world that your data has been taken and trying to get external pressure on you to pay. You've got quadruple extortion, which involves using vulnerabilities against you beyond the initial extortion or even going out and extorting the people whose information they took from you. Let's talk a little bit about where do we go now? We've talked so much on this podcast about resilience and everything like that, but what can we do? Oh, you want to talk about how do we make hackers cry? I really like this conversation. <laughs> this is where we start by reiterating one of the things we've reiterated and said over and over again. You got to start with the basics. The basics in a lot of situations really foil a lot of these things. The most common methods of actual business intrusion at this point are still things like phishing. People opening the doors for hackers to get into their business. Basic things like patching. Basic patching of systems. Making sure old exploits aren't sitting there. There's so much common vulnerability scanning occurring on the internet nowadays that if you can make sure that you are not low-hanging fruit by having something that everybody knows is vulnerable just dangling out there for somebody to find, you cover those bases, you're going to go a long way in keeping yourself safe good access controls and least privilege. I mean, for the love of God, not everybody needs admin. As a matter of fact, most people in every business should never have admin, even on their workstation. You don't need it. I'm sorry you don't need to install Spotify. I'm sorry you don't need to install Steam on your workstation. You just, you don't need these things. But you also don't need access to all the data in your business. Mm -hmm. If you work in finance, you don't need access to the HR data. You don't need access to manufacturing trade secrets. You don't need those things. If you're the CEO, you darn well don't need access to that information. In fact, you probably shouldn't just because of how big a target you are. It's not required for the day-to-day -day work that you're doing. And if it's not, you don't need it and should not have it. And it's not just because we don't want you to have it. It's because you having it becomes a larger liability and a larger risk for the business. You take that stuff away, you start to make hackers cry. It makes their job a lot harder. It makes pivoting and lateral movement a lot harder. It makes accessing these systems a lot harder. And it goes a long way to making it more challenging and giving them more tripwires to have to run through and potentially triggering more alerts and intrusion detection methods, which will give security teams the opportunity to kick them out before they can really do broad damage. Training employees. That's where the whole getting away from people not understanding least privilege, that's a training thing. It really is. Sometimes it's an ego thing, but for the most part, it's a training thing. You need to understand and explain to them, we're not taking this away because we don't like you. And we're not taking this away because we don't want you to have access to it. We're taking it away because it's really exposing us to a lot of additional risk that we don't need to take as a business. And because it is being, this type of access is getting used against other businesses elsewhere. And so if we take it away now, we're we're actually going to get ahead of the pain that these other businesses have felt by just following good best practices up front and making sure that we don't become the next statistic. And of course, if you want some more information on how to make your training more effective, less boring, and just altogether better, more interesting, we have an entire episode on that. 
You're listening to the Fearless Paranoia Podcast. We're here to help make the complex language of cybersecurity understandable. So if there are topics or issues that you'd like Ryan and I to break down in an episode, send us an email at info at fearlessparanoia.com or reach out to us on Facebook or LinkedIn. For more information about today's episode, be sure to check out fearlessparanoia.com where you'll find a full transcript as well as links to helpful resources and any research and reports discussed during the episode. While you're there, check out our other posts and podcasts as well as additional helpful resources for learning about cybersecurity. Now back to the show. So you and I have an interesting mix of opinions on what I think is a crucial aspect here is I think these days we're getting to the point where cyber insurance is this bizarre combination of unaffordably priced, but unaffordable to go without. It's necessary. You need it. But it's so expensive now. The process that they make you go through, and I've sat through these audits, I've run these audits, I'm begging these cyber insurance companies to start actually employing cyber security people to do these audits. Because if I have to talk to another recent college grad who's going through a 400 point checklist, but has no idea what any of them means, just to confirm and update insurance annually for a company, I will rip my own eyes out. But insurance is necessary, but it does create an interesting problem, doesn't it? Well, yes, it's ridiculously expensive because of the fact that, you know, these things are happening at large and they're happening with such volume nowadays that it can't not be expensive. The level of risk to most businesses is just insane. I mean, if people were going out and there were hundreds of car crashes in a major metropolitan area every single day, rather than whatever there is on the roads now, if the amount of accidents went up, you know, a hundredfold year over year, we would watch all of our insurance rates, uh, auto insurance rates skyrocket as well. It's just the risk becomes higher and, you know, therefore the the premiums are going to... So insurance is pooled risk. Yeah. Right. So... But insurance also causes some other interesting challenges too, right? It is a necessity. Businesses need to cover themselves. They need to be prepared for these events. But insurance is a double-edged sword also. So insurance can give information to attackers. Attackers work a lot with what we call like OSINT, open source intelligence. They like to do reconnaissance on their victims before they go after them so that they can understand a couple things. How do we get in quick? How do we get out quick? How do we be most effective? Insurance can be a big piece of that puzzle too, not maybe on the actual attack vector or figuring out how to go about running the attack, but helping you figure out how to maximize profitability. Because being able to understand how much coverage a business will have in the case that they get hit with ransomware or some sort of other malicious attack will help you understand how much you might be able to get from them. And why go after a business that's covered with, say, $10 million worth of cyber liability insurance and ask them for a million dollar ransom when you might have been able to ask them for eight to $10 million worth of ransom and maybe legitimately have a shot at getting it or getting something much closer to it? Why would you not want to consider eight to 10xing your potential take as a threat actor? It would be a huge missed opportunity. So, well, and there's no way these attackers haven't exchanged between them information on what insurance companies are most likely to pay out at what percentage of the available funds at what amount of time after initial contact. Like this has got to be information that's shared at this point. Well, and there's a lot of insurance companies that have been tapped too in the world. So I mean, there's a lot of those insurance providers have already been hit. And some of that information about the types of clients that they've got based on revenue, based on size, whatever, and how much coverage they tend to pick up and what their typical payout or coverage looks like. 
they've probably been able to sit down and actually put together grids, matrices, whatever, of what these different providers look like and what type of potential payout can be expected based on the type of business that they're targeting. It all just comes down to basic math in the end. And so here, I think that they've put together some really great potential open source intelligence, maybe not true open source, maybe kind of closed source, but they put together intelligence of how to maximize these payouts just again, through insurance providers. And that's a huge, huge benefit to them. So there's a third leg to this though, that has really been bothering me lately. It relates to an area where I've got a lot of expertise, which is data privacy and data security. There's a concept in privacy law called data minimization. I've talked about it before on this podcast. And it's this idea that you should only have the data that you need to do what you have decided to do. Now, in privacy law, what data minimization means is that you have to inform people about what you're collecting their data for. You are only allowed to keep that data until that purpose has been completed. So you can't just indefinitely keep the data that you've collected. You're also not allowed to collect or keep data that is beyond the scope of what you are attempting to do. Even if you tell people you're going to collect it, if it is data that you don't need to accomplish what you have told them you're collecting data for, you can't keep it. This struck me really when I saw one of the Facebook Pixel cases, I believe was Delta Dental. It's an insurance company. They're dental insurance. Um, they had people's social security numbers and driver's license numbers that they were collecting and storing. They disclosed that they were not actually a part of the business responsible for actually identifying customers who had accounts or who had insurance through their, their systems. This was information that was superfluous to their needs and highly sensitive, protected information. Your driver's license number is protected under federal law. It may seem like it's not that big of a deal because so many companies ask you for photocopies of your driver's license. But that's the perfect example of this situation. Because they don't need your driver's license number, they need to delete it. If they don't delete it, if they get hacked, that information is now out there. This is a huge privacy deal. And Ryan, I kind of want to know your take on how much the cybersecurity community has adopted privacy concepts and brought them in. Because I feel like this is one of the many areas now where privacy and cybersecurity really go together. If you fail one, you fail both. Well, I mean, data minimization is just, it's the data equivalent of least privilege for access. So the whole concept of least privilege for access is you don't need access to a system or to the capabilities to do something unless it's required for you to be operationally efficient or to be able to produce the operations that you're supposed to produce on behalf of the business. Same thing with data minimization. Again, if you don't need the data to perform the functions of the business, you should not have it. There's no point to having it. The same way that with least privilege, if you have overarching privileges that you don't need, it increases liability. It becomes an additional risk layer that's unnecessary. The exact same thing occurs in the position where you've got increasing amounts of data that don't actually benefit you in some way for performing the functions of your business. It just becomes an additional liability and an additional risk layer. And so to me, they're like two sides of the same coin and the same solution. Just don't have it or don't do it. And that immediately reduces risk and reduces liability. It's a no-brainer. Yeah, given the threat that we've seen that we've actually talked about in this episode of the ability of attackers to use information stolen from your business to extort money directly from your customers if they so choose. I mean, I have to imagine 
if you, the pinnacle of reputation damage would have to be someone getting extorted simply because they chose to use your business, to be a customer of yours, and now they're having to pay for that choice. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of interesting things on ransomware that we are going to get into some more uh, of the cutting edge levels of ransomware. And it is disturbingly fascinating what these ransomware groups are doing. And I really want to get into it because Ryan, I know you have a lot of phenomenal information. I have a lot of stuff to say on those things. Yeah. (laughs) But we are out of time for today. We want to thank you again for joining us on our 50th episode of the Fearless Paranoia Podcast. We want to make sure you stay informed. We want to make sure that you stay fearless enough to do whatever you need to do, but paranoid enough to lock your stuff down and keep you, your family, your business, and anyone else you care about protected in today's world. If you found any of this particularly interesting or useful and think there are other people who can benefit from it, please share it on social media. You can sign up for automatic updates on our episodes through any of your favorite podcasts platforms or by signing up and subscribing to our new posts at our website, fearlessparanoia.com. We really do enjoy having these conversations. We hope you enjoy them as well. If you have any ideas for new topics or further exploration of topics we've already addressed, please reach out to us on social media or through our website. For Fearless Paranoia, I am Brian. And I'm Ryan. And we'll see you next time. Thanks.